If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we will be this morning. In Mark chapter 9, and you know, I had, um, as I was crafting this sermon and pulling things together, I had written what I thought was just a fantastic introduction to this sermon, and I ended up cutting it. Not because uh, it didn't fit any longer, but because of uh, for the sake of time. Uh, there's just so much within the text that I'm hoping to get through today that I, I just want to dive right in. I just want to get right to the Word. I just want to see what God has to say for us here today. And there's just a lot here for us to walk through. And so for the sake of that, I'm going to just kind of skip right on past what would have been a normal introduction. So uh, sorry, you don't even know what you're missing out on today. (laughs) There is one thing that I would like to say by way of introduction to this text today. We are in a passage on discipleship. This text is about what it means to actively follow Jesus Christ and live in obedience to Him. This is not new for us. We've seen Jesus give lessons on discipleship in previous texts. In fact, chapter 8 was very heavy with that as well, towards the end of chapter 8. And now here we are in chapter 9, and we're seeing, again, we're in the middle of these cycles of Jesus as He's interacting with the disciples. There's a prediction of His death and His suffering of what's to come in Jerusalem. There's a misunderstanding on the part of the disciples, and then Jesus teaches them something about discipleship, about what it means to follow Him. And so we're in that cycle well, discipleship, it's, it's important for us to remember that we don't get certain things mixed up as we think about the concepts of discipleship. Discipleship is a result of salvation. It is not a prerequisite for salvation. So if you do not have salvation, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, as you look at the commands that Jesus makes and the instruction that He has for His disciples, it'll be easy for us to, to look at those and find those commands Difficult to impossible to follow. Because the reality is, is we need to be born again. We need the working of the Spirit to be in our lives for us to live out the commands that Jesus has for us. We don't choose to live this way in our natural fallen states. The Spirit of God has to be at work within us. This is what is produced in those who have received new life in Jesus Christ. When the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in and and brings new life to us again, it is then we begin to learn what it means to follow Him, and, and the Spirit of God empowers us to live as He instructs. So if we don't have faith in the gospel of Christ, that's, that's where everything must begin. Everything else that comes after that in, in discipleship, it, it must begin with faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, the gospel of Christ, it is the good news that really begins with bad news, right? We are sinners. We are in, in uh, righteously deserving the judgment and the wrath of God poured out upon us because God is a holy and a righteous judge. He has to enact justice. He cannot be an unrighteous judge. So that leaves every, each and every one of us in a sad state without excuse and on our way to eternal damnation. That is what is right That is what is just because of our own sin. But the good news is that God is rich in mercy. 
He is rich in mercy, and He sent Jesus Christ into the world. He lived that perfect life, something that we could not do. He died the death that we deserve, taking upon Himself the sins of the world with the promise that anyone who believes in Him would receive all the benefits of faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for your sin, restored fellowship with the Father, adoption into the divine family, becoming a son or a daughter of the King, entrance into the eternal kingdom and everlasting life. All that is promised to the one who has faith. You must repent and believe in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. Believe that His sacrifice was for you and fling yourself upon the mercy of our great God and Savior. And when you do so, He then looks upon you as His child. He gives you the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. He seals you in the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven of all your sins and you have life. And it is in that life that the Spirit of God begins to work within us and teach us what it means and how it looks to follow Jesus. And so as we come to this section on discipleship, of of what it means to live a life of discipleship, we recognize that we're going to live that life imperfectly. We are imperfect sinners, even though we have the Spirit of God now residing within us and teaching us. We're not perfect, right? It's It's a journey for us. We're learning, just like the disciples within this book of Mark itself. They weren't perfect, right? And we're no better than they were. It's a process. We learn, we grow, we take steps, and The Lord guides us all along the way. And so we follow imperfectly, but we follow. Not to earn our salvation, but because of the salvation that we already have in Jesus Christ. So it is with that gospel backdrop that that we come to this section on discipleship where Jesus is going to outlay for us several ethical I just lost my, uh, the, the word right on the tip of my tongue there. Uh, ethical instruction for us. The ethics of discipleship. How should followers of Jesus live? What does it look like to follow Him in our day-to-day lives? Well, Jesus is responding to specific things going on in the midst of the disciples' life. John is going to ask a question. Jesus is going to, or He's going to make a statement. And Jesus is going to respond to that and give some additional instruction. So we have teaching here on servanthood, our relationship to sin and our relationship to others, all within this text on discipleship and what it means to further follow Jesus Christ. So with that, let us look at our text. We are in Mark chapter 9 and beginning with verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for one who does a mighty work in my name will, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. First, we see that ethical discipleship encourages and serves. Ethical discipleship encourages and serves. 
in this context, we, of course, we just came out of a section where uh, there was a, an issue with, with the disciples as they're trying to cast out a demon, and, and they're not able to do so. And so they have to learn through that process, and Jesus has to instruct them about how they have to have reliance upon the Lord and the faith that they need in the Lord, even as they're going about and doing their ministry. And then as they're traveling along, they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and they're debating this, and Jesus has to instruct them now. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be the servant of all and the least of all. If you pursue greatness for the sake of greatness, you're missing the boat. And so with that as, as the context, we have this question from John. He's like, oh, okay, well, well in the very in, uh, immediately preceding verse, in verse 37, Jesus uses the example of the child. Whoever receives such child in my name receives me. And, and I believe that Jesus was instructing us about uh, the, what would be considered the least of the disciples. These, insign- these individuals who have nothing to offer you. We're to serve individuals who have no means of repayment, no way of, of serving you back. No, we're serving anyone and everyone. And now John hears this. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And that prompts a question from John. We saw someone casting out demons in your name. Speaking of your name, this is what we saw. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, in some ways, I, I almost wonder if this is almost like a confession from John, as he's like, well, oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus, um, we tried to stop someone who was, who was working in your name. I don't, I don't know if he meant it as a confession. It, 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 doesn't, it may have just been information, or maybe he's just seeking clarification. Okay, well, whoever, you receive anyone in my name, well, we saw someone doing ministry in your name, and we tried to stop him. Did we do the right thing? Perhaps he's looking for clarification. Was that right or wrong for us to do things that way? But notice how the question is framed. First, there was an observation. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. You're painted on the backdrop of the disciples themselves failing to cast a demon out, this might have been a sore point in the life of the disciples. Like, oh, we tried to cast this guy, the demon out and we couldn't do it. Now we're seeing these other people and they're having success. You know, okay, maybe there was a, maybe there was a, a sore spot there with that. Nevertheless, there was a feeling that something wasn't right with this. There's something not proper about these individuals doing this. So they took action. It says, okay, we, we saw this man casting out demons in your name, so they took action. We tried to stop him. That word for stop means to hinder or to prevent or even to forbid. That's how the the King James renders it. We forbade him from doing that. They attempted to stop this man from from continuing in his ministry. We ask why. Why would they do that? Well, John explains why. Because he was not following us. But notice that crucial final word. The reason was not because the man wasn't following Jesus. The reason was because he was not following us, the other disciples. Here was a man who dared to work in Jesus' name without being part of the disciples' group, or their immediate group there, the twelve. So they sought to stop him, and Jesus' reply is this, do not 
stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. If I were to offer a paraphrase of, of Jesus' statement there, it's, it's almost like he's essentially telling his disciples, just because they aren't following you doesn't mean they're not following me. I, uh, they're, they're doing ministry in my name. And here are these prideful disciples. They've been arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're trying to have this, this mindset of setting themselves up in this way. And they seem to have this exclusivist mindset, overly exclusivist mindset, that they are the only true followers of Christ on planet earth. And if you're not part of us, well, then you better not do anything in Jesus' name at all. And Jesus says, not so fast. Don't do that. Don't hinder them. Don't prevent them from their ministry. So on your outline, I, I tried to put it in, in, in positive terminology. He, he gives it as a negative statement. Do not, for, do not hinder them. Do not forbid them. Do not do this. Well, I stated it more positively. I encourage other disciples as the positive opposite of hindering. See, there are other individuals out there who do love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are following Jesus. But if they're not part of our group and our circles, how do we think about that? How do we interact with others who are in different places, in other churches even perhaps? How are we going to interact with them? Here we are in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and we're not the only church in Jeffersonville, right? But there are other churches around, other churches that proclaim the true gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we interact with other churches and other groups who may have some differences with us, but they're proclaiming the gospel and they're seeking to follow Jesus Christ? It's interesting, I've done different forms of open-air preaching at different locations and interacted with, with other open-air preachers, and I can say my own experience, and I can talk about the experience of others who have communicated to me some of their experience. You know, the purpose of open-air preaching, of course, is to present truth to passers-by as they're walking about and going about their day, hope that perhaps maybe something would strike them, that, that they would, you know, something would perk up inside them, and they would want to engage in a conversation, and that we could have a gospel conversation through that. Of course, there are many unbelievers who will scoff and mock, and that's to be expected. But I find that most of the time, the majority of individuals who aren't interested, they, maybe they make a comment, but they just kind of keep on walking. What I find interesting is that some of the strongest pushback is from other professing believers who don't object, at least with their lips, they don't object to the message, but to the method and so they try to hinder the preaching of the Word because they're convinced this isn't effective, that this isn't the way it should be done. To which I, you know, my reply to that is always, well, I'm, I'm not doing it based on your conceptions of what's effective or not. I'm doing it because this is the Word of God and it needs to be proclaimed and there are people who need to hear the gospel. And this is one means that we can do that. But we can be so quick to look at the way other people are doing ministry, to look around, at, look around with an air of superiority saying, well, I wouldn't do things that way, and to discourage others from engaging in ministry. 
conclude that no one else should be doing anything. It should always be us and us alone and always. Jesus says, I don't want you to think this way. If they aren't against us, they're for us. If they're not actively trying to oppose us and, and prevent us from doing gospel ministry, then they're for us. When I first moved into Jeff, there I was kind of befriended by, at that time, he's moved on since then, but the pastor of Oak Park Baptist Church, he befriended me and he actually offered us assistance that I don't even know if everyone is fully even aware of, of all the things that they did for us. I, you are aware of some of the ministry that that church had to us when my, when, uh, my daughter was born. The gentleman who came and preached for us that Sunday, Andrew Hershey, he was a member of Oak Park. And he filled the pulpit as a ministry to us to try to encourage us. And I've received different levels of encouragement from that church and, and that pastor in the time that we've been here. But I can't help but wonder what would have happened if, if they looked at us as, as competition rather than as brothers and sisters in Christ who want to see the Word of God go forward and the gospel go forward. We cannot walk through life believing that we are the only true disciples in the world and, and that we are the only ones allowed to, to do ministry. And we should not seek to hinder others who aren't following us because ultimately it's not about us, right? It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the message of the gospel of Christ. It's about following Him, not us. And we hope to follow Him as faithfully as we can so that we could say with the Apostle Paul, imitate us as we imitate Christ. That would be our hope that that's how we live our lives. But ultimately, the goal is following Jesus Christ. Now, a few things I do want to be clear about is there might be things that might pop in your mind about that and, and the application of that. First, I am not calling for unchecked ecumenism. I'm not calling for unchecked ecumenism. Though the individuals in this text were not following the disciples, I do believe they were truly following Jesus Christ, for they were acting in the name of Jesus. And unchecked ecumenism, and I'll define that in a moment, it blurs important lines, it blurs the gospel message itself. Because there are those who claim to do ministry, but they aren't actually following Christ. They aren't actually proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that we should link arms with these individuals just because they call themselves Christian. I'm not saying that we should encourage a proclamation of the false, of any false gospel. The concept of ecumenism is the concept of anyone who, who claims to be a Christian, that, that we should do ministry with one another and we should uh, cooperate together and collaborate together and do different things together. And uh, ecumenism can be a very dangerous and harmful thing for the church because, again, it blurs very important lines, including what is the gospel itself. From time to time, there are groups that reach out and say, hey, do you want to participate in this activity or that activity? And we find out what's going on there. And there's not only different denominations that are gathered there, but different faith groups. And we're trying to act like we all believe and serve the same God under different names. And that's not okay. That's not true fellowship. But when there is the true gospel of Jesus Christ that is embraced, we need to recognize that we should not be hindering others from proclaiming that true gospel message just because they aren't members at Pillar Fellowship. 
Secondly, I'm also not saying that the theological differences that do exist between other churches don't matter. I mentioned Oak Park Baptist Church before. We are not Oak Park Baptist Church, right? We're a different church, and we're a different church for very important reasons. There are theological and philosophical differences between our churches that warrant there being a separate body. Those theological differences are important, and they do matter, but they don't matter as much as the gospel matters. They are important, but we have to recognize that they are of secondary importance to the gospel of Christ. So while we don't minimize those theological differences, they are important and they do matter. We do need to properly prioritize the gospel message and not hinder the ministry of individuals who are proclaiming the same good news that we proclaim. For fundamentalist churches like ours and fundamentalist circles like ours, that's very challenging for us to think through and how we do practically. But we must not be so, so narrow and exclusivistic that we ignore the genuine gospel work of other groups. Finally, that phrase, the one who is not with us is, the one who is not against us is for us, that we need to make sure we're understanding that contextually to avoid improper application of that. In this context, the one who is not against the disciples was still a follower of Jesus Christ. They were casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. They still were adhering to Jesus Christ. So though they weren't part of that subset of group of disciples, they, they, they weren't following the twelve, they were still following Jesus. There's another text that might come to mind as we think about this, uh, where Jesus actually says the reverse of this. He says, whoever is not for me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's Matthew twelve thirty. if you'd like to look that up later. But in that context, the crowd was wondering, is Jesus actually the Messiah or is He not? And the Pharisees were trying to, to say, no, 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 He's not the Messiah. He's doing works by the power of the devil. So Jesus makes that statement essentially as, okay, you know what, you have to pick a side almost. If you're not for me, then you're against me. And in that context, He's talking to individuals who are either in indecisive crowd or those who were actively opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. So in that context, those who are waffling, they were not followers of Jesus in any sense, and thus were rightly said to be in opposition to Him. And I, and I think these two statements of Jesus, if you're not for me, you're against me in Matthew 12, and this statement here, if you're not against us, you're for us, they're not in contradiction to one another. They have to be understood contextually in the audience there that is at play. So we do need to seek to encourage other believers, even if they're not part of our church. That doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean we minimize our theological distinctives. We can still sharpen one another, but it does mean that we prioritize the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to seek to encourage them, but we should seek to serve them as well. We should serve other disciples. Look at verse 41. He says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Can't help but wonder if the Jesus has in mind these same individuals who Jesus says, don't forbid them, but hey, you know, they may actually end up serving you and they're not going to lose their reward. 
This is about disciples serving disciples. Jesus begins the statement with a truly I say to you, which, which, is, which serves to emphasize the point. Truly I say to you, pay attention to this right now. This is, this is very critical. You should not hinder other disciples from their ministry because guess what? They are going to have opportunities to serve you as well, and if they do so, they have rewards in heaven. The service, the cup of water, notice what it says there, because you belong to Christ. We live in a world that, that despises us simply because we belong to Christ. Because we are believers, we are despised by the world. But Jesus says there will be those who seek to serve you simply because your brothers, your sisters can link arms in the gospel. And those who do so simply because of that will be rewarded. Jesus frames this as other disciples serving them. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, they won't lose their reward. But the logical corollary of that is if we serve other disciples, if we give someone else a cup of water to drink, which is kind of a, a way of serving them, right? That's kind of the concept there. Well, then there are rewards for us as well. And so I, I mentioned Oak Park before. They, they sent us a preacher for a week. I believe that there's going to be reward for them, for their service to us. There were other churches that helped us when we were getting some of our evangelism resources together. Those, those sandwich board signs that I've used at different places at the farmer's market and places, that, that design was given to us by another church. Gospel tracts have been gifted to us. Other churches have come alongside us that partnered with us in distributing literature in our neighborhoods. Those churches will be rewarded for that. Those individuals will be rewarded for that. Do we have theological differences with those churches? Yeah, we do. Are they significant differences? Yeah, they are. They're very significant, and we discuss those and sharpen one another in those areas. But they prioritize the gospel with their help of us. Jesus says, they will by no means lose their reward. So, though we recognize, you know, I couldn't be a member of their church. They couldn't be a member here because of our differences on some rather important things. And there are some areas of ministry that it probably would be wise not to collaborate on because of those differences, and we don't want to lead to confusion through those things. But that doesn't mean we shun one another. That doesn't mean we don't serve one another. And it doesn't mean we hinder and prevent the ministry of one another. There are rewards in heaven for those who serve other disciples simply because they are a follower of Jesus Christ and we love the same gospel. We love the same Jesus. So ethical discipleship thinks rightly about how we relate to other disciples who are not within our church. We encourage, we serve. Again, that doesn't mean we ignore our differences. We have an attitude of grace towards other believers. Second, ethical discipleship is serious about sin. Look at verses 42 through 48. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled than with with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone... Well, that's not true. I'll stop right there. Ethical discipleship is serious about sin. First, it's serious about the implications of causing others to stumble. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Well, these little ones, it refers to individuals who are perhaps weak or new or immature within their faith. They are the least of these, the ones that are easily taken advantage of. Someone who leads one of these astray could refer to children, it could refer to just other believers who are not mature in their faith. Just a note note about something in the text here, the word for sin, that Whoever causes one of these to sin, that's what I have in the ESV. There's a, that word is actually a more general term than specifically sin within this text. Translated literally, it would be whoever causes one to stumble is the uh, language that is used there, and different translations render it that way, the language of stumbling. The ESV has interpreted that word to, to mean cause to sin, but the idea may be more broad than that, to stumble in their faith, to be led astray from the truth. That term is really broad enough to, to have both ideas in play. It could mean sin, to lead someone into sin. It could mean to lead someone astray, to lead them away from their faith in Christ. You know, there are many Christians who use this text to condemn those within our, church, within our culture who are preying upon our children by seeking to indoctrinate them into the world's sexual ethic or whatever other ethic that exists in the world today. And I do think there is a level of appropriateness to that application. There are individuals who are seeking to groom children to try to, to help them and, and desensitize them to the follies of sin and lead them astray in various ways. And we see horrible things taking place. And the literal physical mutilation of children who are convinced of things that are not so. And those who are responsible for these things will face the Lord's judgment. It would be better for them if a great millstone were hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. A millstone is a, is a large stone. It would be round and it would serve the purpose of grinding grain into flour, milling, milling the grain. And the, the text here, the great millstone, that's not just, just a small millstone that you would turn by hand, but it actually refers to a, a millstone that was so large that it would take an animal to move that stone and to turn it. So we're talking about a very large stone. For an individual to have this hung around his neck and thrown into the sea, there is no escape from that death. 
that application of this text, of course, can extend to the circumstance and things that I was just referring to going on in our culture, but I actually don't think that's the primary application and primary view of what Jesus is looking towards within this text. Jesus is speaking about those who lead disciples astray, those who believe in Him, as the text says. Think of other texts that speak of false teachers. I think of Second Peter that speaks of the false teachers that in the language that Peter uses, they entice unsteady souls. Paul writes to the Ephesians that we don't want to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the deceitfulness and the cunning of mankind. We need to be rooted and grounded in the truth. The implication, of course, is that there are some that are being tossed around in this way. There are some that are being taken advantage of and being led astray. They're being enticed because they are unsteady. They have not been grounded in the truth of God's Word. As I was studying this text and thinking about the application and, and how, this, how this affects, I was really thinking about how, how does this take place within the church? How, how does this go on as individuals that are believing in Jesus Christ? What are the different scenarios at play? And I came across someone who was sharing their testimony of their experience of sexual abuse within the church that they attended. And the results of that and how things unfolded there and the lack of accountability that was at play as they became disillusioned with the church. They not only left the church, but left the Christian faith altogether. You know, there are many who leave the church because of illegitimate reasons, I could say. Some that leave the church simply because the church is willing to call sin, sin, and they didn't like being confronted in their sin. But then there are also, also those who are genuinely abused and mistreated, and Jesus says here that it would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck, for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea, than to face the judgment that is coming to them for leading God's people astray. Sin is serious. Leading others into sin is serious. Leading others away from Jesus Christ, leading others into false doctrine and false teaching, this is a serious thing. The individuals who... I hear stories about this going on in different churches, and I think I've experienced this to some degree, but not to the degree that I've heard from other places, but individuals who get into positions of, of leadership within a church and they get almost like a, a power high from that and they use that to abuse their authority for the sake of personal gain or personal gratification or personal pleasure within their lives. They're not there to serve, they're there to, they aren't there to help, they're there to take advantage of others. Leading people astray and leading them into sin. Driving people away from Jesus Christ. Jesus says it would be better for them to drown than to cause others to lose their faith. Sin is serious. Now we can look at this reality and conclude this text right here and read about this and conclude some wrong things. I don't want to take a moment to 
Help us avoid bad applications of this truth because there are these things going on in churches today in terms of the bad application of this truth. There are some that are so terrified of people leaving the church that they try to change the message. They soften the language. They dance around certain issues to try to avoid causing offense, try to avoid making people uncomfortable. But the sad reality is that by doing that, they end up losing the gospel and losing the people that they're so desperately trying to keep in the first place. They, they lose them anyway. Because they're fighting the wrong battle. They're, they're asking the wrong questions. And, and so they're approaching things from the wrong standpoint. The goal should never be, how can I just keep people in my church? I'm just trying to protect my church. I'm just trying to protect the numbers of my church. The goal should never be, how do I keep people in my church? The goal should always be, what has God said? And that's what I proclaim. And that's what I communicate. And I let the chips fall where they may. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We cannot compromise the message of the Word of God for the sake of a fear of driving people away. God has already said that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We don't compromise the Word of God for fear of driving people away. Second, I want to be clear that this message of condemnation on those who cause disciples to stumble is, is not for those, it's not about those who leave for bad reasons. Or there, there are times when, when people leave the church because of legitimate abuses. And Jesus says those abusers will be judged. That is a sure thing. And that is right and just that those abusers will be judged. But there are other times when, when people leave the church because of their own sin was confronted by godly and faithful leaders, and there the judgment is not going to be on the leader, but on the lever. Those who walk away from church, those who walk away from the faith because of a confrontation of their own sin, they don't get to claim this text as though they were... Some people call things abuse that are not really abuse, right? And we want to have correct categories and, and biblical understandings of what is and is not abuse. And speaking lovingly and graciously to sin that exists is not abuse. So there is not judgment for leaders who are faithful to proclaim the Word of God. This warning is not for just and godly leaders. This warning is also not just for leaders within the church. Of course, there are other individuals who just happen to be involved and engaged in different ways that can lead others into sin that are not in leadership. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we all must take seriously the implications of leading other individuals into sin. We must be serious about the implications of causing others to stumble. We also must be serious about killing our own sin. Serious about killing our own sin. This, 
This text contains what is often called radical amputation. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye, cut it off, remove it from you, pluck it out. It's possible that these three body parts that were mentioned, the hand, the foot, the eye, that, that may refer to different things like the hand. That's, that's the things that we do. That's our activity. That's, the Scripture uses hands in that language, with that language often. It, it kind of just refers to the things that we do, whatever your hand finds to do, whatever your activities are in life, your feet, wherever you go, who you associate with, the places and, and the things that you participate in, and your eyes, the things that you see, the things that you look at. Jesus says it's better to be crippled, it's better to be lame, it's better to be blind than to remain in your sin. This is radical teaching. Oftentimes when we get to this kind of thing, the question comes up, is, is Jesus meant to be understood literally here? I mean, we look around and all of us, we've all got two hands, right? We've got two feet, we've all got two eyes. How are we to understand this, this Jesus teaching here? And there are some people in church history who have taken it literally. Uh, there was one individual who actually castrated himself in application of this text. That, that's happened in church history. Well, I don't believe that Jesus is calling us to physically harm ourselves and to do this to us in pursuit of holiness. And the reason I don't believe that is for one primary reason. Cutting off your hand, gouging out your eye, that, that doesn't actually prevent you from sinning, Right? You can still sin without hands, right? You can still sin without any eyes because sin is not just things that happen externally. They're added to, they, they flow out of our hearts. They, they can happen within our minds. So even if we were blind and had no arms or no legs, we could still sin because sin is not just about outward actions. It flows from the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts and our minds. So if it's not to be taken literally, what's, what's the point? How should we understand this? And it comes back to this. Are you serious about killing sin? There's a famous theologian by the name of John Owen who, wrote, who once wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And he wrote three books about what that looks like in the believer's life. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What are you willing to do to get sin out of your life? When counseling individuals who are expressing a desire to break free from sin of, of pornography, one of the first questions I always ask them is this, what are you willing to do to root this out of your life? How far are you willing to go? Are you really willing to do whatever it takes? And I, and I ask questions that are much less than chopping off your arms and plucking out your eyes. I, I'll ask them questions like, are you willing to get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone? Are you willing to cancel your internet? And of course, we hear that, oh, how could I ever live without the internet? You'll survive. Are you willing to do whatever it Are you serious about your sin? 
serious to say this, this is something that, that doesn't honor the Lord. This is something that, that grieves the Lord. It grieves the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want this in my life anymore. It's, it's something that has bothered me all this time and I, I struggle with and I battle against it. How far are you willing to go? Are you willing to change and even inconvenience your life in the pursuit of holiness? Jesus says it is better to be inconvenienced in this life than to burn in the next. Does this mean that we're expected to be perfect? No, it does not mean that. Does this mean that if we struggle with sin that uh, maybe we're not saved or we're in danger of hell? Not necessarily. But I'm not interested in softening Jesus' words here. Jesus has very strong words to say. That it is better for you to inconvenience your life and to, to practice this radical amputation within your life than for you to be entered into hell, to be cast out where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. And a picture of what Jesus is referring to there, the, the valley of Gehenna, there's a whole history of things there where that was a valley of, of idolatry, and it was eventually desecrated and turned into a garbage heap that was lit on fire and burned night and day, and it was, a, it was used, eventually that, that valley became used in the, inter, in the intertestamental literature, that's a tough phrase to say, intertestamental literature, uh, to speak of eternal judgment, usually as a, as a picture of the fires of hell. We do not want to be apathetic towards our sin, because if we are apathetic, that, that's a problem and it should be a concern. For us. Followers of Jesus are serious about killing sin. I have one more point here, and I'm I'm gonna save it for next week. Because there's a lot in these final two verses that if I were to try to rush through that, I would feel I'm doing a significant injustice to those things. So I'm going to pause things there. And as we think about the ethics of discipleship, as I was even pulling this together, I kind of was already wishing that I had broken this into two sermons. Well, now there's the opportunity to do that because we're already at noon and I just want to break there. But as we think about the ethics of discipleship and what Jesus presents for us here, we need to think carefully about how we interact with one another. We want to serve one another. We want to serve other believers. We want to do what we can to encourage other believers, other disciples of Jesus, even if they're not following us, if they're following Jesus, that's the main thing. And as we think about sin within our own lives, take seriously the implications of what it means if we lead others astray. Be careful that we might never do that. We never want to be, lead others to stumble and fall and to take seriously our own sin. Ethical discipleship.
takes sin seriously. Father, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for your word. Lord, there's so much in this text. There's so much more that, that could be said that I've even left unsaid it today. And uh, Lord, I, I don't, I never want us to get to a place where we feel burdened and weighed down by, uh, by, by these teachings on discipleship. Lord, Jesus says some very difficult things. He says some very hard things. He says some things that sound very extreme to us. But Lord, we want to be individuals who are standing firm within our faith and, and confident of, of our standing before you because of our faith in Jesus Christ and then as an outflow of what you have done for us, desire to live in obedience to you. Lord, give us a desire for holiness. Give us a desire to live for you. Give us a desire to, to honor you with our lives. That we'd be willing to do whatever it takes to root out sin and to remove it from us. We don't want to be walking in sin. We don't want to be living that way. We want to live as you have instructed us. Lord, I pray that even as we seek to root sin with, out of our own lives, Lord, that we would also seek to have a gracious spirit towards others, Lord, that we would never be so exclusivistic, Lord, that we would exclude others who are genuine followers of you. We recognize that there is an exclusivity to the cross of Christ that is only those who trust in Jesus Christ to have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But Lord, may we not be so individualistic that we overlook other disciples that you have. May we have gracious spirits towards those who are spreading the good news of the gospel of Christ. I thank you, Lord, for this text. I thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.